Our New Testament reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 13 through 23. And in the first 12 verses of the chapter, we had read where Jesus made the mud from his spit, put it on the blind man's eyes, and, and healed him. In these next 11 verses, we'll see the reaction of the Pharisees, and not just the Pharisees, but also the healed man's parents. So beginning with verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Our sermon text this morning is in the book of Psalms 27, chapter 27. In verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Gerald. Amen. Thank you, Gerald. Man, good to be back up here. Um, don't normally bring my phone up here, but I got to watch the clock. I have my battery in my watch is dead, so uh, forgive me for that. I don't normally have my phone in the service with me. Uh, but anyway, uh, you need to, uh, I need to cover a couple of housekeeping things before we dive into the scripture today, uh, especially for our guest. When you drove up, you saw you know, our, our weeds and our grass overtaking the property, and you're probably thinking, man, what a derelict bunch of people here. Won't even keep their property up. But I want you to know that's intentional. There's an intentional uh, aspect of that on Back to School Sunday, uh, Education Sunday. We let the grass grow for two weeks to remind our kids that we want them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then you adults in the Sunday school class over here are probably thinking, man, church can't even keep up their maintenance of their air conditioning. No, that's intentional too. We want you to be on fire for the Lord. <laughs> So uh, just wanted to clear all those things up, especially for our guests, okay? We do try to take care of our property for the glory of God. All righty, well, man, uh, again, got to say a couple more things real quick. We've, we've recognized and honored our Sunday school teachers and prayed for them. But on this Education Sunday, I just want to mention an, a, another couple of groups of teachers, okay? We, we have public and private school teachers in our in our midst, in our fam church family. And we want you to know 
uh, as you begin a new school year, that your church family will be praying for you as you strive to glorify God by making a difference in the lives of your, your students. Uh, we pray that you will, you will see your work, your vocation as a calling from God, and as work for Him, and that you will work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then you will not compromise your Christian stance. And, and that may be difficult for some of you, but we're praying for you. We pray that you will see your hours in the classroom as one of the primary ways you glorify God in your life. We pray that you reflect His glory to your students and to your co-workers, your fellow faculty, and that they will see Christ in you, the hope of glory. We pray that you will always remember that God is glorified by his people when we are faithful to him. So we pray that he will provide you the grace for you to be faithful in this calling that he's placed on your life. We pray that when you go to work every morning, you will realize that you are not just entering a secular environment, but more than that, you are bringing the life of Christ who dwells in you into a world that needs him so badly. So God bless you, and we love you. Then there's another group, a big group. We've got a big group of these folks to our homeschool teachers. Your church family will be praying for you as you strive to glorify God by teaching your own children, your own flesh and blood, each day, day after day. Uh, we recognize that this represents our prayers for all of our parents, even those who don't homeschool. We pray that the Word of God will be on your heart and that you would teach it diligently to your children as you raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We pray that your light will shine before your children in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We pray that you would have a mind fixed on things above and not on things of this earth and that your children will take note of that. We pray that God will keep you in perfect peace as you homeschool and as you parent. We pray that you would trust God to do his work in your children's lives through you as you abide in Jesus, knowing that he's got to do it. Ultimately, he's got to turn their hearts. Doesn't matter how great a homeschool teacher you are. He's got to turn their hearts. He's got to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. And we pray that you will trust in that and find peace in that. We pray that the Lord will build your house knowing that we labor in vain if he doesn't do it. So homeschool teachers, God bless you. We love you. Oh, okay, man, it's great to be back up here. I, I'm so thankful. And I, but I'm also thankful for those who stood here for the last four weeks, for Lyndon and Mark and Justin and Jeremy. I was blessed by every message. I'm grateful to Lyndon for reminding us of our great Savior who seeks and saves the lost. I'm grateful to Mark and his teaching about Christ's work of atonement. I'm thankful to Justin for his message on the importance of obedience of children to their parents and how God is honored and glorified in that. And I'm thankful for Jeremy's message and our need to continually present our bodies to God as living sacrifices and how that fleshes out in our lives as we strive to live for his glory alone. 
And what a great Sunday to return to this hallowed spot. Education Sunday. Wow, I couldn't have planned that any better. I love this Sunday. I mean, I love every Sunday. You know that. But I love Education Sunday. I I love Education Sunday. I'm so thankful for our Sunday school teachers. What a, a gift to our church family. I'm so thankful for the service that they render to our children and to our families. And so, especially to you today, I pray that this message and next week's message will be an encouragement to all of you, all of you, because we have a first in our church family history today, a two-part Education Sunday message. You know, when I'm gone for a while, you know, my heart gets kind of full, and I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm typing out my manuscript, and I'm working on my manuscript, and I, and I finish up yes, uh, Friday, and I look down at the bottom there with the little word counter thing, and it's up pushing 4,000 words, and I'm saying, something's got to go here. <laughs> something's got to give. Uh, you know, we got a lot going on Sunday. We're welcoming members, and uh, we're recognizing teachers, and Ty's teaching a new song, and uh, so I'm probably not going to get up there until about 11.20 or so, and sure enough, that's about right where we were, so I, I had to do a two-parter. Had to do a two-parter. So two-part Education Sunday, a first in RCC history. All right. So we're going to be in Psalm 27. Here's my plan. Today we'll get the overview of the whole psalm because the psalm represents what we want a disciple that comes out of RCC to look like. Psalm 27 is a great psalm for what we want our students to ultimately look like. Okay, what, what a disciple of Christ looks like, how they live, key, key qualities of their life. And then next week, we will hone in on the focus verse that Gerald read, verse 11, and talk about our enemies a little bit more, okay? Because they abound. Title of this two-part message is, Our Enemies Abound, So We Must Teach. Enemies abound, so we must teach. It's a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. Okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus, the master teacher. We come to you today, Lord, and cry out with David. Teach us. Teach us, O Lord, because of our enemies. Prepare us for battle by teaching us. Please do that. God, I thank you for every teacher in this building today, whether they be Sunday school teacher, homeschool teacher, public school teacher, private school teacher, Many of them wear more than one of those hats. So thank you for them, Lord. Give them grace, wisdom, boldness, courage, clarity in this coming year to be the teachers that you've called them to be. And may their students see without a shadow of a doubt that they love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that they love them as themselves. 
So bless our teachers this year, Father. Thank you so much for them. And bless our time in the Word now, Father. Give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what you want to say to us. I ask that the words of my mouth and the corporate meditation of our hearts together here today be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, uh, Robert Thune made this observation, quote, the cultural predominance of Christianity in the Western world is dead. The cultural predominance of Christianity in the Western world is dead. It's becoming fairly obvious that the majority of the people in our country and in the West do not look to the Bible anymore for ultimate answers. For most Americans, God is not the ultimate and final authority. Self is their ultimate and final authority. Or government is their ultimate and final authority. But not God. Not God. Born-again, Bible-believing people who are striving to obey God are definitely and clearly in the minority. And that minority will probably, probably continue to shrink unless God in His sovereignty moves in major revival. So what do we do? Given the God-ordained providence in which we find ourselves in these days. Well, we pray... We proclaim the gospel. We strive to be good, strong, good in the biblical sense, good in that we desire to glorify God, okay? Good, strong, joyful, thankful, loving ambassadors and witnesses for Christ. We strive to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we press on. And we teach. We teach. We teach our hearts out. We teach the principles and precepts and standards of God's holy word. We teach our children. We teach our friends. We study this book so we can teach it properly. This is absolutely critical if the generations who follow us are going to be prepared to stand strong and face the difficult challenges that face God's church and to face their enemies, which abound. If minds are going to be renewed, like Jeremy talked about last Sunday, And if believers are going to grow in the knowledge of God, and if hearts are going to be changed and strengthened by the grace of God, then there must be teaching going on. What was Jesus' one of his prayers for us when on the eve of the crucifixion in John 17, the great high priestly prayer, he prayed that God would sanctify us in the truth. And then he reminded us where we find that truth. Your word 
is truth. So there's got to be teaching going on. It, it, it's non-negotiable. It, it, it's got to happen. And that is what we are emphasizing this morning, and we do this annually. This is what we want to be reminded of this morning with a special emphasis. Not that we ignore teaching the other 51 weeks of the year, but one Sunday we want to put the emphasis on it that it deserves. This is why we have Education Sunday every year, to remind the people of God at Rockdale Community Church at least once a year of the vital importance and necessity of teaching the people of God and especially the rising generations. This is why we have Sunday school. This is why we have Bible studies on Wednesday night. This is why we have Kids Rock. This is why we have Solid Rock. We want to follow in the footsteps of our first century brothers and sisters who, according to Acts 2.42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We want to obey Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 4.13 and devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So I want to teach you this morning. I want to teach you every Sunday morning, and I want to exhort you. I want my teaching to be laced, permeated with exhortation. We want to be diligent and purposeful in this endeavor. Again, Paul in 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. The teaching. Definite article there. Not just any teaching. The teaching. The teaching from this. The teaching. And he says, persist in this. Persist. Keep doing it. Never quit. Be consistent. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And the word save there is referring to the present tense salvation, our sanctification. See, every time we come to church, every time we go to a Sunday school class, we should leave a little bit more sanctified. That's what Paul is referring to here. By teaching the Word of God, we are saving ourselves. We are growing ourselves And we are saving or growing, sanctifying our brothers and sisters, our students, whatever age they may be. Man, I always think of Jesus on this Sunday. Well, I think of Jesus every Sunday, right? And and every day. I think of Jesus every day, okay? But what I mean is, when we emphasize teaching... We are not emphasizing something that Jesus didn't emphasize. Have you ever thought about that? First, he commissioned us to do it. The great commission of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, to the disciples, the ones he was handing the baton to, the one he was passing on the work to, he was about to go back to the Father, I'm leaving you with this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I've got your back, and I've got all authority. So you teach what needs to be taught, because I'm with you, and I have all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it is, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, teachers hear this, what great news. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you're teaching those kids in your homeschool class, he's with you. When you're teaching those kids in the three and four-year-olds here at Sunday school or the youth class in Solid Rock or kids rock on Wednesday night, well, he's with us. He's with us. How do we know? He said he would be. He promised he would be, and we can count on that. So he commissioned it. Second, he practiced it. He practiced it himself, Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to coddle them. No, that's not what it says. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus' compassion for the shepherdless people resulted in him teaching them. Isn't that amazing? So listen, listen, listen now. Christ-like, Christ-emulating compassion for shepherdless people who are downcast and distressed will result in teaching them, speaking the truth to them in love, telling them what God has said, not coddling them, not just feeling sorry for them. It may include that. We are to weep with those who weep. Yes, a thousand times yes, We want to show empathy and compassion, but we don't stop there at just the emotional level. As we observe the actions of Jesus, as we strive to, as 1 John 2, 6 tells us, to walk as he walked, we see very clearly that Christ-like compassion includes telling people the truth teaching them, proclaiming God's standards. And we beg, as we do this, we beg for God's wisdom concerning the right timing and the proper wording. And as society sinks further and further and deeper and deeper into the cesspool of humanistic atheistic, man-glorifying, God-rejecting, narcissistic, and often totally perverted philosophies, teaching God's people and teaching our children becomes more and more important with each passing day. As the enemies of God become bolder and more aggressive, teaching the next generation The ways of God is not an option. 
It's not an option. It's a necessity. It has to happen. So this year I've chosen Psalm 27 as my text to promote and encourage the ministry of teaching God's people. The focus verse, as we've already seen, is verse 11. This morning we're going to walk through the entire psalm together and then hone in on verse 11, Lord willing, next Sunday. So let's get our overview. Let's get ready to corporately ponder this great, great psalm. Okay? Um, We're going to read the entire psalm, and as you'll see, kind of give you a, a a foreshadowing here of what you'll see. As we walk through this psalm, I believe we'll see three clear sections. In verses 1 to 6, we're going to see the believer's courageous confidence. In verses 7 through 12, we're going to see the believer's total dependence. And in verses 13 and 14, we will see the believer's strong hope flowing from complete and absolute trust in God. Okay? So let's begin. Verse 1, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Hey, uh, don't we want our kids talking like this? Don't we want our children speaking like this? Thinking like this? Using words like this? Don't we want fearless children? The Lord is my light and salvation. (laughs) What have I got to be afraid of? Why should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Who am I going to be afraid of? God is on my side. I need fear no man. We want disciples saying that. Children whose fearlessness exists because they recognize the creator of the universe as their stronghold, their refuge, their fortress, their light, their salvation, their reason for existence, their purpose for living. We want them to come out of our teaching ministry like that. Verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. We can't paint paint a rosy picture for our disciples. Evildoers will assail us, they will be present. They will confront us and surround us. Think about it. They're surrounding us now. Abortion worshipers on this side of us. Biblical marriage deniers on that side of us. Gender fluid people behind us. A made up term. A phony term. 
potential stealers of our children in front of us. We're surrounded. But ultimately, they will stumble and fall. They will be cast. If they stay like that, they will be cast into the pit of hell, and nothing will stop that from happening. When I read that verse, I thought about another one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. The psalmist Asaph was thinking about the evildoers when he wrote that psalm. And when he began writing it, you, I'm sure most, a lot of you are familiar with it, he was what? He was envious of them. He was envious of the arrogant. He was envious of the evildoers. He was whining that he had wasted his life being good. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. You know, I've tried to honor you, God. I've tried to live for you, God. And I look over here at these people, these arrogant evildoers, and they, they don't give a rip about you, yet they are prospering and they're getting rich and they're making money and, and they're being exalted in, in the eyes of the world. And man, so living for you is just a waste of time. But then at the end of the psalm, as often happens in the psalms, he came to his senses in verses 16 and 19, and he wrote this. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God where he was taught. Okay. I'm just adding that. I think I can... I think I can biblically add that, even though it's not in the Psalm 73, we can put together the whole counsel of God and say, this is where he was taught. Where did Jesus do a lot of his teaching? Yeah, in the sanctuary. So when I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end because I was reminded by the teaching of the word of God. I discerned their end. Truly, you set them the evildoers, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Listen, beloved, the evildoers that, are, that surround us, and they're there. There's no denying it. And we've got to prepare our kids for it. We've got to be honest with our children based on their level of maturity as they grow up. We've got to let them know the evildoers are out there, and they're coming for you. They hate your guts. So we've got to get them ready. But we also teach them that the evildoers, the God deniers, the Bible rejectors are headed for total and absolute and eternal destruction because God will not be mocked. They will reap what they sow. Our kids need to know and understand this. And we need to encourage them that it's not being on the right side of history that matters. It's being on the right side of the creator of the universe. Verse 3, moving on. Again, in verse 3, we see the fearlessness. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, 
yet I will be confident. Again, this is what we want. Fearless Christians, confident Christians, confident in what they say, confident in what they proclaim, no matter how many enemies are surrounding them, no longer content to be the silent majority. Listen, beloved, the silent majority days are over. We must fearlessly and graciously and lovingly push back, speaking the truth in love. The silent majority just gets ignored and trampled on, okay? We can't be the silent majority nice guys anymore. We can't be the passive pieces of milk toast anymore. We speak on behalf of our Lord. We have no king but Jesus. We speak boldly and we speak confidently, not obnoxiously, okay? Not obnoxiously. And you say, well, Butch, I've seen you in your past. You've spoken obnoxiously before. Yeah, but I'm growing. I'm growing. Loud doesn't mean obnoxious, okay? We speak the truth in love. No more silent majority. I'm not in that group anymore. I don't, I don't want to be in that group anymore. That group just got trampled on. Okay? We demonstrate this speaking confidently, boldly, graciously, lovingly. We not only teach this to our kids, we demonstrate it to our kids. And we teach them to be fearless. The war has risen against us. Just like verse 3 says. The war rise against me. Beloved, the war has risen against us. We'll talk more about that next week. As Paul discusses in Ephesians 6, the cosmic powers over this present darkness are arrayed against us, and the flaming darts of Satan are pointed right at us. And listen, they're not just pointed. They are in the air headed toward our heart. And you better have the breastplate of righteousness on. You better have clothed yourself with Christ. The enemy is going for the kill. And the sleepy, apathetic, cold, lukewarm, lackadaisical, probably fake believer will be taken out. So number one, you better be sure you are saved. You better make your calling and election sure. So the darts are headed toward us, the darts of the enemy, of the roaring lion who's prowling around seeking who he can intimidate and devour. He's looking for us. But by God's grace, we will be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we will stand against the schemes of our ancient foe. And we will teach our children how to put on the whole armor of God. That we might, that they and we might say like David, the war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Oh, may God help us. May God help us to raise up confident Christians. Not sleepy ones. Confident Christians. True warriors for Jesus.
Verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Here we see a singleness of purpose. Note the little phrase, one thing, one thing, one thing. Derek Kidner writes, note the singleness of purpose. The best answer, answer to distracting fears and the priorities within that purpose, to behold and to inquire. In other words, a preoccupation with God's person and his will. I will behold you to get to know you, and I will inquire of you to know what you want me to do. He says two things. Yeah, but they're so, so connected, it's one thing. They go together. This is the, according to Kidner, this is the essence of worship, indeed of discipleship. To disciple our children, to disciple our students, to hone in on this one thing. One thing. Knowing God and knowing His will. Two things that become one thing because they're so connected. So let me ask you, this morning. This is a good time to pause for self-examination question as we prepare to come to the table. What is your primary purpose? What is your one thing? What is your one thing? If God required of us to strip away everything and keep one thing, what would it be? I encourage you to ponder that this week. This is so vital. It's the evidence of the new creation. Because when you get the new heart at salvation, everything that is secondary to Jesus begins to slowly and strangely fade away. Things that used to be so important to you turn out not mattering very much. Right? I see some nodding heads. Amen. They turn out it really wasn't, wasn't that big a deal. It really didn't matter in the grand scheme of things, in the eternal purpose of God. It doesn't really matter. Jesus becomes your one thing. Pleasing Him becomes your one thing. That's two things. No, but they're connected. The more you know Jesus, the more you're going to want to please Him. They are vitally, unbreakably connected, so much so that they, the two things become one thing. Knowing Jesus and pleasing Jesus. Knowing God and glorifying God. One thing. God and everything connected to God. His Son, His kingdom, His people, His church, His commission, His gospel, etc. Becomes your one thing. All these things. Interwoven, totally perfectly connected, become our one thing. So parents, I want to ask you, what do you think is your children's one thing? As you watch them, as you live with them, as you go through life with them, what do you think is their one thing? That's a great question to ask yourself. And then as God gives you wisdom, maybe broach it with your children. What is your one thing? What do you think is their one thing? As you watch their lives, what do you think 
is your kids one thing. Verses 5 and 6, got to pick it up here. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Notice there, again, the confidence in, in what God can do. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So in verses 5 and 6, we get these continued proclamations of confidence. And look at the result. Look at the result at the end of verse 6 of all this confidence. What's the result? What's the result? Non-singers, I'll ask you the question. What's the result? I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Confident Christians are singing Christians. Confident Christians unashamedly praise their Redeemer in glorious song. Amen. So, verse 7, we get the shift now. Verses 1 to 6, the believer's confidence. The first six verses are just permeated with statements and proclamations of confidence in God. Not in self, in God. Then at verse 7, we get the shift from confidence to dependence because David begins to pray. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Don't you love verse 8? Don't you love how David's heart attitude just radiates out of that? I mean, look at what he said. You told me to seek you, so I'm going to seek you. Is that our heart? God, you told me to seek you, so that's what I'm going to do. You told me to love others as I love myself, so I'm going to do that. You told me to forgive, so I'm going to forgive. You told me to be your uh, ambassador for Jesus, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to strive to do that. You told me, whatever, fill in the blank. You told me this, so what's our response? So I'm going to do it. You told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. May God give us all that heart. David, you told me to seek you, Lord, so I'm going to seek you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is that our heart? Verse 9, the prayer continues. Verse, uh, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Continues in verse 10, for my father, look at this, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What's the lesson from verse 10? What's What's the lesson? No matter what humans forsake us, even if it's our father and mother, the people who should love us the most, No matter what human beings forsake us, God won't. The Lord will take me in. What does that sound like? Sounds like that great line in Psalm 23. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord will take me in. 
Friends and foes forsake me. Doesn't matter. Jesus. I've got Jesus. Got Jesus. That's all that matters. My one thing. My one thing. Doesn't matter. Father and mother may forsake me. Jesus said that would happen. What he said. Do not think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And I'm going to divide families up. Because children are going to love me and parents are going to hate me. And that's going to be a dividing line. Or vice versa. Parents are going to love me. Children are going to hate me. Dividing line. But even if your family forsakes you. We've got parents here. Their children have forsaken them. We beg God for that to change. But hey, if it doesn't, God does not forsake you. He will take you in. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Until that day, I'm begging that my children will be there with me. Verse 11, our focus first. Teach me your way, O Lord. There's our word teach. Teach me your way and lead me on a level path. Why? Because of my enemies. We'll unpack that more next week, okay? David wants to be taught by God. He wants it, okay? I'll say this real quick about that verse. The desire must be there. The desire must be there. How does God meet that desire? Through our own personal reading and studying of the Bible and also through human teachers. Okay? We'll come back to verse 11 next week, okay? Then verse 12, a final plea. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. We can identify with that false witness thing, can't we? As Christians, man, we can identify that. Because what are, we, what are we constantly being called? Bigots. Because we won't fall in line with the trans movement. Unloving. Because we teach that homosexuality is a sin. Homophobic. Transpho- another made-up term. Transgender. Made-up term. Fake term. Per- that doesn't exist. We, we don't care about women. Okay? Because we stand... For the human being growing inside of them. So we don't, we hate women. False witnesses. False witnesses. Liars. False, we're surrounded by them. So we can identify with verse 12. And then the last two verses we can see a statement of ultimate hope. Ultimate hope. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then a final exhortation in verse 14. Wait for the Lord. In other words, trust Him. Trust Him. In this mess we're in, this society we're in right now, all this chaos and confusion and falsehood and the enemies that are surrounding us, wait. Just wait. Wait. Trust. We've learned wait means trust. Okay, trust. In the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Oh, church family, be strong. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Jesus is coming, He's building His church. Trust Him. Trust him. So to sum up, 
Psalm 27 highlights three essential heart attitudes that every Christian should display and what we want our students to be growing toward, okay? And some are there, are getting there in, at different levels. We all grow at different levels, and we're patient with each other, right? You guys have been patient with me for 28 years. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're, we're, we're all growing at different levels, but this is, this is the, you know, what's our, our monthly verse? Him we proclaim that we may present everyone complete in Christ. This is the, these are the marks of a complete Christian or a mature Christian. Not per, we won't be totally complete here, right? That day's coming. When the Bible uses that term for people living in this evil age, we're talking about mature, maturity. We want mature Christians. So a mature Christian will display these three qualities in an ever-growing manner. A courageous, bold, outgoing confidence that can be seen. It's evident. It's not secret agent man, Christian. It can be seen. Okay? They're not afraid to say what God has said. They're not afraid to proclaim Jesus as king. A confidence that can be seen. What good is your Christianity if it can't be seen? What good is it? What good is your faith if it's not visible? What did Jesus say? What did you, we'll go back to Jesus, right? He's our one thing, one thing. What did, Jesus, what did you say on this? Help us out here. What did you say? He said, let your light, which is really his light in you, right? Let your light shine in your room all by yourself. No, let your light shine before men, before people. So a courageous, confident Christian. Number two, a total and absolute dependence on God. That's what the second section of the psalm was when David was praying. Prayer reminds us and speaks of our dependence on the Lord. A total and absolute dependence on God that keeps us from despair, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, the knowledge that God will never leave us nor forsake us, even if we feel all alone. He's there. He's with us. We can count on that. Because He told us He would be. And we want to teach our kids that. When you get saved, when He saves you, He's with you forever. You cannot leave him. You cannot fall out of his hands. He's with you forever. Even if your father and mother forsake you, he's with you forever. And third, a strong hope flowing from a complete and absolute trust in God. We firmly and joyfully declare with the Apostle Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is alive. And he's my king. And he wins. And because I'm on his side, I win. I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have no king 
but Jesus. And he has triumphed and will triumph and, and, and we triumph with him. So these are the three qualities we are begging God to give our rising generations. Confidence, dependence, hope. This is what we want for our kids. This is what we want for every child at RCC. This is what we desire for our kids and our grandkids. We long for them to be courageous, bold, confident Christians who recognize their total dependence on God and whose hope is strong and unwavering and who are trusting solely and totally in Him and who are living out the truths of their faith on a regular and consistent basis. But forget our kids for a moment. Moms, dads, what about you? Are these three qualities evident in your life? Bold confidence, total dependence, living hope. Got to start with you. If you're going to pass it on to your kids. Now I know that let's, I know God is sovereign. Over the year, many, many years with youth ministry, I've seen God save young people out of the homes of depraved homes, out of depraved homes. So God can still save them. But I want to encourage you, parents, grandparents, model this for, for your kids and grandkids. Model it. Model it. Boldness, confidence, dependence, hope. This is why we must teach. This is why we must teach. We can't drop the ball. We can't drop the baton. We teach so that they, others may teach others who may teach others. 2 Timothy 2.2, I think it is. You see four generations. Paul says, Timothy, teach what I taught you so that others can teach others. So you got Paul, Timothy, and two other generations in that verse. That's the goal here at RCC. And every year we remind ourselves of that. Okay, so next week we'll focus on verse 11. And we'll look closer at our enemies next week. I'll close with Spurgeon. Man, got to close with Spurgeon, right? Especially after being gone for four weeks. Got to close with Spurgeon. He said this, Saints are a race that neither death nor hell can kill. As long as God lives, His people must live. Jesus reigns on and will reign till the sky shall fall. Indeed, and when the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, his throne shall stand. Big question for today. Will you be around that throne? That eternal standing throne, that throne that will never be destroyed. When this earth is gone, when this age is over, Will you be at that throne? If not, good news for you. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. Confess your sin. Repent. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Join with the people who say clearly and loudly and boldly, we have no king but Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Make us bold. Make us bold. Deepen our dependence on you and remind us consistently by your spirit of the glorious hope that we have in you. Thank you now for this time at your precious table where we remember what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.